0: Everybody, am Yes, I'm on. All right, good to see you all tonight. We are in the book of Revelation, and we're going to begin in Revelation 19, verse 11. That's a few verses um, back from where we left off last week. I think we ended last week right after verse 15, but 11 starts the section, so we'll just do a quick run-through of the last couple of verses before we catch up to where we left off. So Revelation 19, 11, that's where we're going to start. And really, honestly, the best way to understand If you're just diving right into it, as we are, just diving right in the middle of the chapter. um, Contrast verse 11 with verse 10. I don't want to keep going backwards and backwards, but just for the point of reference. Revelation 19.10 features a moment when John, after receiving a lengthy vision, falls on his face to worship the angel that has been talking to him about the vision. This is something that happens a few times in the Bible. Someone gets a great vision, and they're so overwhelmed, they're so, they're reclimped. And, and they just, they fall on their face, they start worshiping the first thing they see, which happens to be the messenger. And so the angel has to say to him, don't worship me, I'm just a fellow servant, you need to worship God. And not coincidentally, I think, right after that, the sky splits open and verse 11, Revelation 19, John looked and beheld a white horse. And he that sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. So who is this person riding in on a white horse? Who is this fifth horseman of the apocalypse? Well, he is described for us as he that is called faithful and true. But then you go to the next verse, verse 12. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Oh, 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 because oh, you just told me that his name is faithful and true. But now I'm hearing that he has a name that no one can know except him. It's his own and we can go into that more in detail, but we did that last week, so you can check the tape last week. I just, I'm building up to where we left off. Okay? So this is this description given to us of this apocalyptic vision of this being riding on this white horse. He's got a name, faithful and true. He's got a name no one can know. Verse 13, he's clothed with clothing that is dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So, he's called faithful and true. He's called the Word of God, but he's also called a name that no one can know. I don't think, and I emphasize that, I keep doubling back on that, because people get fixated on that middle one. They get fixated on that one phrase, and he has a name that no one knows, and they treat it like it's this great mystery. Like, well, what is his name? What is this great thing to be revealed? How can we know who he is if we don't know his name? It's something to be re- revealed for us. No, no. It's just one of three ways to describe the same being. You know who this is. It's obvious who this is. This isn't a mystery. This isn't some secret thing. John is looking at this. John knows exactly who this is. We are seeing Jesus. He is described for us in some of the ways Jesus is described for us. The faithful and true God. God in the flesh. Well, who is God? He is the one who has a name that no one knows. Jehovah, he says, but even as he says that to the israelites he says no one is to know my name my name is sacred my name is holy don't blaspheme my name that's the idea behind it that's just another way of describing that same idea and then verse 13 he is the name called the word of god which of any description of jesus that is kind of a pet phrase to the apostle john it's that one john is the one who introduces us to this idea that Jesus is not just the man born of Mary, not just the carpenter's son, not just the, um, not just the rabbi, not just the teacher, not even just the miracle man, but as God incarnate, God in the flesh. He is the word made flesh to dwell among us, whose glory we beheld as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1. So that's if anything is a tell, if anything is a wink and nod, it's this right here. Here he is again, he's dripped, he's dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and coming behind him, verse 14, are the armies, the armies which were in heaven, followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And we emphasized that last week. We talked about the distinction, this contrast. You have this, the the champion riding in the front of the army and he is drenched in blood. He's wearing clothing that has been soaked in blood. But those riding behind him, those in relief of him, those whom uh, are those who are following him, they're pristine. So if you're thinking of this in terms of the vision, which is what this is, and we're going to really emphasize this point in a second. These are visions, not prophecies. Not just literal prophecies, but vision prophecies. If you're seeing it in terms of the vision, you see this champion riding in on a white horse, you think in military terms, you think this is the general. He's coming in, he's leading the... I I messed this up last week he's leading the cavalry the cavalry of Calvary there I said it right he's leading this cavalry so you'd think well if he's covered in blood he must have come out of a terrible battle and it looks like if he's covered in blood he got the wrong end of it but then you see his army behind him and they're spotless they're pristine not a scratch on them not a drop of blood to be found in fact their clothes are pure white robes so you can't even hide the blood if there was blood they are spotless Because he has taken all of it on himself. He has fought the war himself, covered himself in the blood, and made it through his victory, everyone else behind him gets to be clean. And what do we read about him? Verse 15. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. With it he smites the nations, and he rules them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. He rides in a champion. He rides in a conquering champion. And what is his grand weapon of conquest? What is his weapon of choice? It's a sword. And it's not just any kind of sword. It's not just tempered steel and a handle and a a, a pommel and and a cross guard. No, his sword is the spiritual sword. Out of his mouth, words come. And out of his mouth come the cutting words of God. Out of his mouth come the piercing words of God. Out of his mouth comes the divinely inspired message. What he speaks is word. The word. His word of God. Out of his mouth goes this sharp sword, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder. It can split into soul and spirit, joints and marrows. In other words, it can cut you physically and it can cut you spiritually. It can affect what you do in this life and it affects where you go in the next life. The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrows, and is a discerner. Of the thoughts and intents of the heart whatever you might do whatever you wish to do it is measured against the Word of God and if you allow it to be it becomes your conscience that helps you do and think the right way that's his weapon of choice that's how he wins the war not by killing people but by saving people by cleansing their conscience by washing their robes so out of his mouth goes this special kind of weapon and he uses it to smite the nation's He wins this war, and in the vision, that's defeating the nation, specifically Rome and all her forebears. He smites the nations with this weapon of war, and he rules over them with a rod of iron. Again, this is a vision. This is watching a play. This is watching a metaphor come to life. And you have to take the whole big picture of the metaphor and figure out, now, what is the point of it? So you see this metaphor of a champion who uses a weapon who subdues a nation. Well, in reality, a champion who uses a weapon to subdue a nation puts his boot on the neck of the enemy he's defeated, plants the flag in the ground and says, I won. I now conquer. I now own you. Well, you illustrate that. Illustratively, that's what Jesus does to the devil. Not literally does he do it to sinners, but illustratively in the vision. So he rules over them with his scepter of authority, his rod of iron and He judges. That was one of the earlier descriptions of him. He goes forth to judge. He judges. What does it say? He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath when judgment is executed against those found guilty. He stamps the vineyards of the grapes of wrath of Almighty God. So that's this description we get of him. That's where he left off last week. We get this picture of Jesus marching in, riding in. I shouldn't say, well, that's fine. He marches in, rides in on his cavalry. So verse 11, he has a name, faithful and true. Verse 12, he has a name that no one knows. Verse 13, he has a name, the Word of God. Now look at verse 16 and see how this theme persists of ways in which John describes him. He has on his vesture, which previously was described for us, soaked in blood. He has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. So we've already got a name. We've got a name that no one knows. We've got another name. And yet here's another, another, another name. A name written, quote, king of kings and lord of lords he has a name written on both things his clothing and on his person itself his sexual skin and i wonder if we're not meant to see a contrast uh, a connection between this and going back to chapter 17 if you remember it was it's several weeks ago now but it's only a couple pages in your bible so it's fine and back in chapter 17 john sees the vision of the harlot riding the dragon And on her forehead was the name that was written, Babylon the Great, the um, kingdom of evil or something like that. It's, it's It's all very descriptive. Mother of harlots, there it is. Babylon the Great, Mother of harlots. So John looks earlier and he sees this evil depiction of this evil champion of sin and a name that describes their mission statement. This, what you're seeing, is Babylon the Great, Rome. It's the New Testament Babylon, the empire of evil of the New Testament. Babylon the Great, and this mother of all harlots, the, the uh, progenitor of all manner of sin that has permeated the world, the, 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 the forbearer of all kinds of evil. That's how it's described uh, in, in this apocalyptic vision. Well, now you get the, the holy side of that. Not this evil, sinful creature with this woman riding on it, but this beautiful, majestic horse with the king of kings riding on it. And he's not Babylon the Great. He's not limited to one empire of evil. He's not just the producer of evil. No, he is the king of all kings, over all kingdoms. The Lord over all lords. The Caesar over all Caesars. The emperor over all emperors. This is the God over all things. And that's what's written on him. And it's the last description of what's written. It's the last description of his name. It's the last one that John wants to give you to describe who this being is. What other way can you describe him but the one who is over all things? King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, there's your overview. There's kind of just your your pass uh, over it. Going more deeply, examining more closely, you'll have commentators and and scholars and and writers and, and teachers trying to To break it down in detail. And they try to figure out. Well what exactly is John specifically seeing here? Wouldn't it have been great if Revelation was illustrated? No it wasn't unfortunately. But that would have been swell. It would have been harder for the scribes to copy it I guess. But it would have been great to visualize. To see. Instead of just having to imagine. Because we all imagine it differently. And so people have trouble grasping it. And wrapping their minds around it. I've got this picture given for me in words in verse 16. That on his clothing and on his thigh. So right here. Is a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Does that mean... King of kings is on his clothing and lord of lords is on his thigh. Does that mean it's king of kings and lord of lords, like it's all running together? Or it's all on one and also copied on his thigh as well? Some I've, I read some commentaries. I'm going to give you some of the different interpretations that I read of this. One says that it is uh, an engraving on his scabbard. Scabbard, that's like the holster of a sword, you know. Uh, you sheathe your sword into its scabbard. And if you're riding a horse, you would have the scabbard on your belt, and so it would be hanging, it would be, be laid across your thigh as you're riding the horse, and so it was engraved on there. Well, that's all very descriptive. I'm sure it looks great in a picture, but it doesn't say anything about a scabbard because the sword's coming out of his mouth, right? Not his hip. So I don't think that flies. Another one, another commentator I, I saw said, well, John is seeing a sculpture. In ancient sculptures, they would sculpt the image and they would engrave who it is on the bottom of the image, which that makes sense, except John is seeing a rider, not a sculpture, He's not seeing a marble bust coming, bouncing toward him. He's seeing an actual being, flesh and blood, by the look of him, charging in on a horse. So I don't think that flies either. I saw another one say that what the Lord is doing is he's wearing a sash, like Miss America, that drapes over his clothing and down his thigh. And that says on it, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Again, I see the visual. I can close my eyes and I can see it, but it just, it's not there in the text. It doesn't say that. And I don't think it really matters. In fact, I'm certain it doesn't matter. Because the idea is not to give you a description of just the visual. John, John, I've said this many times, It's the Revelation is like a play. You know, the curtains roll back and you see the scene performed and the curtains close and they open again, it's a new scene. And you get these various visions that are like plays being performed with a point and a message behind them. And all that's fine, but don't get so caught up in that analogy that you miss the fact that Revelation is meant to teach you something. It's not just for show. It's not just for entertainment. It's not supposed to be just sit back and soak it in and just marvel at the imagery. Because sure, it's easy to do that, especially if we had it illustrated or if we could see what John saw. Our minds would melt if we could see what John saw, probably. But don't get so engrossed in the spectacle that you miss the point. The point is not, well, how did God figure out how to write King of Kings on his thigh and his clothing? Who cares? The idea is here is the champion of righteousness. And who is he? He's not just some other king. He's not just some other lord. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of all lords. You have fighting on your side the champion of the world, not just of an empire or a nation. That's the point. I do think there's a connection to chapter 17, the name written on her versus the name written on him, but that's as far as I'll go with it. Verse 17, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. You've got to remember where we've, what we've been reading to this point. Rome, a couple of chapters ago, or in fact just a chapter ago, was left a smoldering carcass. Remember, Rome was destroyed. He had that, he had that vision of the angel picking up the great stone and chucking into the sea and saying, and that was Rome! Exiting stage left Rome is now destroyed and the champions of Christianity or not even the champions the the survivors the the martyrs the 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 Christians themselves who were looking for justice for their for their death now they get to be victorious they stood on the ashes of Rome remember when all the other people who relied on Rome the sinners they were hiding in the back from God the heroes of the story the Christians they're standing in the middle planting their flag saying we won they're standing on the smoking smoldering ruins and John is seeing everything take place up here in the sky. In the ground below him is the, the you know, shell of what's left of the destroyed Rome. It's just rubble. And so he sees in the east, he calls it the sun, because that's where the east is. He sees not standing on the star in the middle of our solar system. That's not what it is. He says, I look to the sunlight. I look to the east and I saw an angel calling for the, for the crows, for the buzzards to come and pick at the carcass, come and feast. Look what it says. Come and feast and gather yourselves to the supper of the great God. Verse 18, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and them that sit on the horses and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Rome, your enemy has been put down and you now get to be just a spectator to what God does to it after that. And he calls for the buzzers to come in and pick its carcass clean. And look at the list of the people. Find me somebody who's left out of this equation. The kings, those are the emperors who call the shots. The captains, those are the generals who lead the troops. The mighty men, those are the great warriors. Those are the top fighters. Those are the ones around whom whole platoons and battalions are surrounded. That's your Goliath kind of people. That's your champion warriors, your mighty men. The horses, those are the tanks. The mow down, the soldiers on the ground. The horsemen, those are the people riding the tanks. The free, those are your comfortable citizens. The bonds, those are your servants and slaves. The small, those are your poor. The great, those are your rich. Everybody who's anybody who got any kind of satisfaction out of Rome's sinful prosperity, is going down with the ship. They're all destroyed. They're all taken out. They're all lying carcasses on the ground. And to all of them, the angel says, you bird food. Go eat. None is going to remain. None will survive. Second Timothy 3.12, your Bible tells you, all who live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. That's true. That's half of it. The other half is, and those who persecute you will suffer in the end. That's Revelation 19.18. Now look at 19.19. 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army Him on the horse and his army that's christ and christianity in general so what do we see about them john says i saw the beast previously described for us as the devil and the kings of the earth those whom the devil uses as weapons against christianity and their armies the grunts who do the dirty work for the kings who represent the beast and they're all gathered together Like, they're all standing on this side of the battlefield, and they're looking at this army on this side of the battlefield, and the army is Christ and His Christians. I said that last week. We're going to reemphasize that. The army is not the army of angels. The army is the army of Christians. You are his army. You're wielding the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 6, okay? Yes, he has his angelic army, and yes, he uses his angels, but you, in this vision, in this metaphor, you're the army. You're the people who go and you fight, in quotation marks, the battle with Jesus he's the one who's covered in blood you're perfectly fine but that's the way it goes so again john says i saw the beast and the kings with him and all their armies and they're all gathered over there and they're making their stand as though they want to fight so let's see what happens incidentally i want to just pause here for a second and emphasize what you're seeing is a vision okay not a prophecy now prophecies contain or sorry visions contain when god wants them to prophetic elements but a vision is not a prophecy. Prophecy is not necessarily a vision. A prophecy could be as simple and as clean and easy as Jesus will return and judge the world, righteous and unrighteous, living and dead, etc., etc. That's that's a prophecy. It's a prediction, but predictions are built into prophecies. But let's not keep going down the rabbit hole, okay? The idea is a prophecy is just a statement of thing that God will do, or it's a foretelling of something that God is currently doing. Right, that's a prophecy. A vision takes that idea of telling the future or also telling the present, and it coats it in this apocalyptic language. It coats the prediction in this grandiose metaphorical play. You know, so instead of just saying to, to us, Jesus will return and you'll be victorious, you watch us a, a, um, a representation of that, an illustration of that come to life you see it in the form of a grand battle with armies over here and armies over there and the clashing of titans and so forth, dragons in the sky and pregnant lady being chased by said dragons, all kinds of crazy things that are never literally going to happen. They represent things that either are or will happen. That's Revelation. And by not knowing the difference between a vision and a prophecy, by conflating those two things, that's 90% of the problems that people have with Revelation and where people drop the ball in properly interpreting it. So I I say that as a setup to the things we're going to read about, because we're going to read about this great war here and this great war there, and there are all kinds of people in religious circles who are looking for and expecting to come someday an actual physical clash, battle, swords clanging like in a movie, and that is not what you're seeing here. What you're seeing is what those ideas, what the ideas behind them convey, what the impressions they leave with you, and what the ultimate big picture point of it is, it's just it's just illustrated for us in an analogous way in these visions okay so I say that as a setup because verse 19 is all set up all these armies over here and the armies of heaven marching in over there verse 20 and the beast was taken and, and that's what happens in battle you have a general on the hill since the armies to battle the battle is won automatically it's like chess when you take the king it doesn't matter how many pieces you had or didn't have You take the king you win you take the general, everything's going to happen. Well, the beast is taken. And with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. You've got to go back several chapters to remember this. We had this whole section of Revelation about the, um, the, the uh, emperor worship and the priests that the emperor of Rome put in place in the temples established to worship the Caesar and worship the image and how the priests facilitated that worship. And that emperor worship concept was a big part of the middle of this book. So the beast is taken and with him the false prophet that was facilitating all that false worship That he used to deceive them that had received the mark of the beast again We've already talked about this. We're in the tail end of revelation. We're making callbacks now You got to refer back to the previous text to remember these connections Mark of the beast is the symbol of those who gave in to the worship of the emperor who yielded themselves over to the devil Whether they knew that or not whether they made that connection or not. They bowed to the emperor instead of to god so the beast is taken, the false prophet is taken, those that he deceived, the false prophet deceived, are taken, and them that worshipped his image are taken. They were all of them cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. The word, the beast is taken, and them that they deceived are taken, and worshipped the image are taken, etc. The word taken, piazzo, meaning to capture, it's, just, it's continuing the, the metaphor of warfare and battle. But again, I emphasize, it's a vision. It's a, it's a play. You're seeing a, a movie come to life, okay? Not a prophecy of what's actually going to happen, literally speaking. So what John is telling us here, generally speaking, is that the devil is going to try one final battle, but he's going to be taken captive. He's going to try one last stand, but he's going to lose. His army's going to crumble. The emperor is going to fall. The false priest who uh, facilitated emperor worship is going to fall. The weak Christians who submitted to Roman uh, pressure And bow before the image will fall anyone who made war against god is going to fall this is a message of hope for you who are not going to do that for you who are going to be faithful you're going to stand with the army of god you're going to be robed in white riding behind your blood-stained champion and everyone who is on the other side is going to be defeated not a gun is going to be shot in this war. Not a sword's going to be swung in this war. That's not how it goes. They're all amassing their forces to fight, but the fight's already over. The battle's already won. Jesus isn't riding in through the clouds a couple of verses ago. He's not riding in to fight like, like Gandalf at the end of the Battle of Helm's Deep. That's not what God is doing here. He's coming to collect. He's coming because the battle's won. He's coming to brag. He's, coming. He's already been the champion. He's already won the war. They just don't realize it yet. They're ready for a final stand, but the stand's already been lost. The devil just doesn't see it. So what's going to happen to those who stood against God? It says they will be cast alive. They will be thrown as they are into a lake of fire that burns with brimstone. And in the next chapter, John is going to call this process the second death. Chapter 20, verse 6 and verse 14 but here he sees it as the guilty being alive when they suffer this death what is a living death eternal separation you will be cast alive it's not like you're alive you'll be cast and then you'll die it's you're going to you're going to be living as you're dead you're going to be separated from god living through this separation from god for how long well how long is god so too will your separation be. Hell is real. And if you find yourself there, it is a place of no escape. It is as long as God is. Verse 19. And the remnant were slain with the... By the way, pause. Just to double down on that idea. What did, what did Jesus say when he was describing the judgment in the book of Matthew and other texts? He says, depart from me, I never knew you, to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Right? Hell is a place prepared. Hell was a place originally conceived to house the devil and his angels. But to whom is Jesus speaking when he says, depart to that place? Not to the devil, not to his angels, but to Christians who didn't confess him. To those who didn't do his work. To those who didn't feed the poor, who didn't uh, clothe the the naked, who didn't shelter the needy, etc. Those people will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Go to the place prepared for the devil. It was made for him. The place prepared for you is the church of Jesus Christ. I go to prepare a place for you so that we can be together forever. That's his spiritual kingdom, John 14. That's the place he prepared for you. Now, I'd rather go there than to go to the place prepared for the devil because it's going to be built for him. It's going to have his accommodations. And I don't want to live like he lives. But that's the thing. You live like the devil lives here. You live with the devil there. And that's what you're seeing here. Verse 21. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat on the horse. That's our king. The sword which proceeded out of his mouth. And all the fowls, the King James says, the buzzards specifically, were filled with their flesh. Remember the angel in the sunlight. The angel in the east says, come buzzards, feast. Well, they're going to be filling their bellies with the carcasses of everyone who was left remaining. That's what the word remnant means in the beginning. My Bible says remnant. Your Bible might not say remnant. Does anybody have a different word in the beginning of verse 21 there? The rest, rest, that's fine. That's just the literal idea. The King James uses the word remnant, maybe dangerously so here, because that's a word almost exclusively to refer to God's faithful few in the midst of a sinful majority. Isaiah loves that word to talk about his faithful few people in persecution and in uh, exile. But here the word means just generic, the rest of them. We're talking about sinners being destroyed, okay? So the devil's going to be overthrown, the the captains, the mighty men, the rich, the poor, the great, the strong, all those people are going to be overthrown. Is there anybody left? Did we miss anybody? Oh, we did miss some? Verse 21, that covers you people, you sinners that we missed. You, the rest of thee, will be slain with the sword of him that came out of his mouth. And all the buzzers will fill with their carcasses. Again, I emphasize, it's a vision. It's conveying an impression. It's leaving a thought in your mind do not look for a time to come when you will see the sky split open and you'll see jesus riding in on a white horse and you'll see below jesus an army of darkness marching to face him in battle and there'll be a big battle and a bunch of people will be killed afterward no no you're taking in literalizing what is meant to be generalized what's the impression you get unfortunately people literalize And you have things like the crusades and you have holy wars and people going and fighting actual battles and cutting actual throats and shooting actual guns in the name of Jesus. And that's certainly not what he intended. What you get in verse, uh, what you get in chapter 19, chapter 19, is the idea of the devil is is thinking if I can just land one more punch, if I can just get one sucker punch. The devil's thinking I killed him once, didn't take, but if I did it again, maybe it'll stick. And it's just, it's not going to happen for you, Satan, you're going down. And you and everyone else who follows you are going down too. That's the impression you get from this. Now we go to chapter 20, which really the chapter break shouldn't be here. It should be about verse 11 or so. So we'll try and get to verse. We'll try and get to that point and stop. But keep going in chapter 20. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Now, there's no chapter break. So what you just read just smoothly flows. Not even segue. It just keeps going from what you just read. What did we just read? The army of darkness amasses, and God just smacks them down left and right. The devil, the emperor, the champions, the, the kings, the priests, everybody just get smacked down left and right. They're all, they're all defeated. And now once they're defeated, you start chaining people up. I saw the angel come down from heaven having the key, key in apocalyptic language, that which unlocks or locks depending on context context here we're locking because it's the key of the bottomless pit and he's got a chain in his hand he's going to chain he's going to secure seal and lock so no one can get out get out of what get out of the bottomless pit it's not the same word in the greek language it's the same idea in scripture the bottomless pit the same idea to outer darkness the place where God prepared for the devil and his angels. The place where God, who is light, is not. God created a place where he would not be. It's like, it's like a hair's breadth away from, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? That stupid uh, riddle, which doesn't deserve an answer. But I'll ask him when I get there. No, it's, it's almost that, but it's not that. It's, it's God recognizing his own ability to remove himself from somewhere. If God can be anywhere, he can also choose to not be somewhere. And God created a place where His presence would not be. He just created a void. He created a, an emptiness in reality. He created a space that where there is nothing that has to do with him. Thus perfectly described for us in Scripture as the darkness of darkness, outer darkness. Described for us in Scripture as abusis in the Greek, from which we get the word abyss. Just darkness within darkness within nothingness of darkness. Outer darkness, or here a bottomless pit during the ministry of jesus the lord exercised a demon horde named legion luke chapter 8 verses 29 through 33 he exercises legion and the demon after they've been removed from the, the the body they ask the lord who is the champion of the demons the the master the conqueror of them they ask him and they beg him they say please don't cast us into the deep don't put us back to the place where we were, the place prepared for us. These are the angels of the devil. These are his lieutenants. These are his minions. Allowed to be let loose to, to uh, enslave the bodies of people in the period of the miraculous age. But that's a whole different thing. Ask a question, put it in the box if you're going to get detailed. The point is, Jesus exercises the demon. And the demon, knowing where he was going to go, and knowing how sweet it is on earth versus there, they say, please don't put us into the, the deep. Please don't take us back to where we were. So Jesus says, all right, I'll put you in some pigs. Presumably these were Jewish demons. I don't know. He just puts them in pigs, and they, they scurry off a mountain and die. And they go back to hell anyway. Isn't that funny? Or they go back to the abyss. So that's the idea. They Please don't take us back to the place where we were. Don't take us back to the bottomless emptiness of darkness where there is no God at all. The idea is the same of outer darkness. So the angel comes down to do the bidding of God. And the bidding here is to take the devil who was the beast was taken. Remember the end of the last chapter? We've got their general. We've got their top commander. Chain him up, throw him away, and throw away the key. Verse 2, here it is. He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. You get one, two, three, four descriptions of the devil here, which I'm more fascinated by breaking those down than I am talking about the thousand years, but we'll do that too because that's what everyone wants to talk about but again notice the descriptions of him first the angel comes down he's got his chain to bind him he's got his lock to secure him and he takes hold of the dragon he takes hold of the serpent the 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 serpentine like creature that tempted eve in the garden of eden which is the devil the word means accuser and satan the word means adversary so you've got this being described for us with words that first conjure to the mind the beginning of the Bible. Here we are at the end. We're, we're almost, we're three chapters away, 20, 21, 22. And our minds are now taken all the way back to three chapters into the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent approached Eve and tempted her to eat the fruit she was not supposed to take. So that first description of him, dragon, serpent, takes our minds back there. Well, now that dragon who did that evil deed, who tempted woman to sin and man with her to sin and caused all this misery in the first place, a lot of which is described for us in this apocalyptic vision as the death and misery that comes with warfare. Well, now that demon has been, that devil has been captured and bound and chained. I'm setting you up here. Here's what you just read. The dragon, the serpent. Ah, my mind goes back to Eden. It should. Because originally, Eden was a paradise ruined by the devil. Man forced out of it. Unable to live there in harmony with God. Why? Why could not man live there? Because there represented walking with God. Eden was heaven on earth. Eden was man and God united. Eden was humanity and God as close as they could be because there was no sin. Until there was. Because that old serpent... The devil ruined it. Well, what did he do? Well, he tempted, and he led them to sin, even though God said, if you do this, you'll die. And that demon is, that devil, I keep calling him a demon, the devil is, well, the devil, the accuser. I'll come back to that one. And serpent the adversary. He shows his adversarial nature. He shows his nature as the enemy there in Eden. He wants what's worse for them, not what's best for them. He lies and manipulates and twists the truth to get Eve to sin. That's your Satan. That's your adversary. But he's also the accuser. That's devil. What does that mean? Well, it means he whispers in your ear. And he misleads you and he twists the truth. Or he'll tell you enough truth to get you to do what you want to do anyway. He convinces you to do that which is wrong. And in the moment you do what he wants, despite all of his promises, despite all of his great things he's going to give you, as soon as you give in and you yield to the devil, the devil runs to God and tattles And he says, do you know what Matthew just did? And he makes accusation against you. He accuses you. And this is what he's going to do on the day of judgment. The devil is going to stand on the other side as the lawyer against you, as the prosecutor against you and he's going to stand before the great judge, and he's going to say, on this date, Matthew did that sin. I was there because I helped him do it. He sinned, and I'm accusing him, making him unworthy because he's guilty. He can't go into heaven. You can't let him in. He's got to live with me forever. And my lawyer is going to step up and say, it's true, he did it. And then I wiped it from the record, and I covered it in my own blood because my lawyer is Jesus. And so the accuser will have no leg to stand on. That's the role of the accuser. He gets you to sin, then he tattles on you so this is our enemy so he is the he is the propagator of sin he is the champion of 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 separation from god okay i'm emphasizing this i'm building you to something because he is now being described for you in this vision in this play that you're watching this champion of sin is bound and restricted so that sin no longer has a hold on you and he is bound and restricted for this grand time period Called in our Bibles, a thousand years. Everybody's Bible says a thousand years, right? How long are the brethren going to have tribulation in this book? Revelation 2 10, 10 days, a factor of 10. How long is the devil going to be bound? A thousand years, a factor of 10. It so happens that throughout apocalyptic writing, factors of 10, numbers and symbols we've talked about, represent special things. Factors of 10 represent incomplete, indefinite periods of time. How long will this last a little while then it won't anymore an indefinite period revelation 2 10 You'll have trial for a little while then they kill you and you live in peace How long will the devil be bound a factor of 10 to a magnitude of 10 times 10 a thousand We're gonna come back to that. That's just to set the stage Job said a man could not stand before God without an advocate because he's going to be asked questions that he cannot answer to a factor of 10, Job 9.3, God could ask a thousand questions and man could not answer one. A factor of 10. Does that mean on the thousandth and one question I can answer it? No. It's a way of saying no matter how many he asks, you'll never have an answer. Job 9.3. God is said to own the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 50 verse 10. Who owns the cattle on the thousandth and one hill? God. No, it's still God. It means he's got them all. All right? It's a factor of 10. Um, Psalm 90 verse 4. A thousand years ago is as clear in God's mind as yesterday is to you. Does that mean God can't remember a thousand and one years ago? No, no, no. That's not what it means. It's a factor of ten. It's a metaphor. Peter, a thousand years to God is like a day. A day to God for us is like a thousand years. Another verse that people love to literalize, but it doesn't mean that. It's a factor of ten number. It means it doesn't matter how far back you go, God knows it very clearly. John says the dragon will be bound a thousand years what is it a literal thousand years why would it be a literal thousand years when nothing else in this book is literal except for the name of the writer nothing is in this book is literal. it's not supposed to be literal why are we making this literal i'll tell you why because the crackpots and the loons and the false teachers who have written all kinds of books they sell for 29.95 though they're not worth three nickels they write those things and they have to make it literal because otherwise they don't understand the book and they don't know how to sell it and propagate their false doctrine so they have to make it literal. But there's nothing about this that should be literal because it's not literal. Satan is bound for a period of time as long as God wants. What is this period of time? I'll tell you in a second. Keep going. The point is Satan is bound, restrained, limited. Acts 23, verse 12. The people who conspired against Paul said that they would not eat or drink till they had killed him. Well, they failed. That doesn't mean they ended up eating or drinking, though I assume they eventually did. They failed to kill Paul. But they told themselves, we will not eat or drink till we've killed that guy. What they did was, according to the word, they bound themselves. Same word. They restrained themselves. They forbade themselves, forbade themselves, denied themselves, meat or drink, till they did what they wanted to do. Same application here, except it's done by someone with a lot more willpower, that being God. He's doing the binding. So what about the devil? Jesus was accused of exercising demons in Matthew 12:24. As he was exercising evil spirits, he was accused. I have time. He was accused by his critics who were always looking for something, as they said, Oh, he's only casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, which is just an insane idea, as Jesus says. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Why would the devil cast out the devil? Why would the champion of darkness cast out spirits of darkness? No, if I'm casting out demons, it stands to reason that I'm on the other side of the, the, the argument, I'm on the other, other side of the battle. I am destroying the devil because I have the power over the devil. He gives this analogy in Matthew 12, 29 about binding a strong man in order to spoil his house. That's what Jesus does. He says, I am casting out devils because I have strength over devils. So instead of twisting it to find a way to not believe me, just look at the evidence and see who I am. If I can cast out devils, I have power over the devils. So I'm working for God because I am God. It's like binding, restraining a strong man. Well, in the context of strong man is Beelzebub and the other devils under him. That same idea, that same word here, applied to the devil himself. The devil is bound. Listen, Satan has been bound. Satan is still bound. You are living right now in the year of our Lord, 2021, March 10, 721. It just turned. You are living in the thousand-year reign. We haven't got to the reign yet. It's all the same thing. You are living in the thousand-year period of the devil being bound. He is bound right now. Because what that description is, is a metaphor for the error of the Messiah. When the devil, who sent sin into the world and cursed the world with sin, is put down through the cross of Christ, wherein now is salvation. And so it irks me to no end when people keep talking about waiting for the thousand years the devil will be bound. And they don't even realize what they're saying is that they live right now, they're saying, without the devil being bound, which means they say they're living right now without salvation. Because all the thousand years is is a metaphor for you being saved. You have freedom from sin. You get to live without the devil hurting you anymore. Physically, sure, he's doing all kinds of things. That's half the book of Revelation. But spiritually unless you yield and bow to the image he can't touch you because he's been bound and restrained that which the devil did in Eden was undone at Calvary right Jesus opened the door to the new Eden the new place you can live where you can walk and talk with God what is that place the church of Jesus Christ and it frustrates me and I'll say this again when I get later in the book of Revelation when people keep looking to the future when they read the end of this book, when John is describing you right now, he's talking about your present victory now. He is showing you how great you have it now because of how great it will always be for you. Whether this body lives or dies is irrelevant. You are in the spiritual body of Jesus Christ. You are his bride. We'll get to that later, though. That's this idea. Christ bound the devil when he died on the cross. He, he took away the power of Satan, Hebrews 2.14 tells you. He defeated the devil's two weapons, sin and death, 1 Corinthians 15.55. The thousand years is the heir of Christianity. Now keep that in mind as we look at the next verse. He's going to bind him for a thousand years, verse 3, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and put a seal upon him. That word seal, your Bible might not say that. It's the, uh, the authority of Jesus Christ, the insignia of Christ. He cast him and chained him up. Remember the angel had a chain. That's your seal like you seal a pickle jar so you can't open it unless you want to. That's that word seal. But this word seal, he set a seal upon the bottomless pit chaining of the devil. That's his way of saying by my authority he goes in there. So unless it's by my authority he ain't getting out. That's that seal. That he should deceive the nations no more. What did the devil do to ruin all this? He deceived Eve and from that time until the cross he's been deceiving nations and now I mean he's still deceiving nations but now we have the alternative now we can go to Jesus and choose not to be deceived anymore till the thousand years should be fulfilled and after that he's loose for a little season what is that I'll tell you in a minute verse 4 and I saw thrones and they who I'll tell you in a second that set on them and judgment was given unto them who Alan here. And I saw the souls of them, oh, here they are, them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. Now, maybe your translation is not so wonky, but that's the way mine puts it. The them and the they, that pronoun is referring to this people here in the middle of the verse. I saw the souls of them beheaded for the witness of Jesus, martyrs. The word witness means martyrs, same word. And I saw them sitting on thrones, and I saw judgment, authority given to them. This is a vision. It's a picture. This is what it looks like when the champion riding in the front of the army wins the battle, plants his flag, and now he owns his territory. All of those who fought with him get the spoils of war. This is the visualization. This is the apocalyptic version of us getting the spoils of war. It's not you, Christian, get to find some sinner and put your boot on his throat and plant a flag in his chest and say, I'm the champion. No, that's not what it is. It's a metaphor for your victory. What does victory look like in physical warfare? It looks like this. The champions under the, the ruler, the general, get the spoils. So those who are beheaded for the witness of Jesus are given thrones and given authority, given judgment, power. They get the spoils of war. And for the word of God. Oh, they were martyred for the witness of Jesus and the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast, who did not worship his image, who did not receive the mark on their foreheads, those who did not yield to worshipping the devil and his prince, the emperor of Rome, in their foreheads or in their hands. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Again, here's where people mess up. They read the first thousand years and they read it like this. Okay, so you have a thousand years where the devil will be bound and then he'll be loose for a little season and then there'll be another thousand years. I have five minutes. There'll be another thousand years where Jesus reigns. And that's what you're left behind, series and all the other nonsense. And it's nonsense. It's nonsense. It's N-O-N-sense. Nonsense. Not real. It's not biblical at all. That's where they mess it up. They say, well, you got this whole big thousand-year period here. Then the devil will come back. And then Jesus will come back. There'll be a thousand-year period with him. No, no, no. This is parallelism. This is all the same thing. This is one thousand-year period, apocalyptically speaking. This is one indefinite period by God's timetable where the devil is bound and Christ reigns. You see how those two ideas complement each other? The king of darkness is put down. The king of righteousness reigns. Same idea. This is the era of the Messiah. If I had neon signs, I would be blaring it. That's what this is talking about. Right now, you're living in the era of the devil being bound. You're living right now in the reign of Jesus Christ. Blows my mind how Christians will read this and think, I can't wait till Jesus starts reigning. What are you calling him a king for then if he's not reigning? what does a king do if not reign he's king now he reigns now right so who gets to reign with him who gets to be his victors with him are you a victor in jesus if you're not stop singing the song if you're a victor in jesus if you sing the song you're reigning with him right now that's what it's telling you why because you chose not to worship the beast because you chose not to submit to the devil. Because you chose not to say, I want a mark that says I'm siding with Rome. No, you chose the mark that says I'm siding with Christ. What's that mark look like? It's beheading. A word which, by the way, it's right here in the verse. They were beheaded. Your Bible might not say that. It only appears one time the Greek word in the New Testament, right here. It means to cut with the axe. These are the people who lost their heads. And the people who say, oh, this is literal. So everyone's going to reign with Jesus without heads? They're beheaded because Rome killed them for siding with Christ. Well, what happened to Rome? We already read. They're going to be chucked into the sea and destroyed. And what's left are the champions reigning with Christ. You are citizens of the kingdom now, Colossians 1.13. Verse 5. Two minutes. But the rest of the dead live not again till the thousand years were finished. And this is the first resurrection. Who are the rest of the dead? Well, they're not alive because grammatically they're dead. But they're also not the martyred dead that we talked about in the previous verse. Those dead were the dead who lost their heads. That rhymes, so it must be true. These are the rest of the dead. So who dies in war? There are two groups. You have the faithful dead who died by the hands of Rome, and you have everyone else who dies. Who else dies? If you're faithful for Jesus, you're going to lose your head for Jesus. So who's left but those who are unfaithful for Jesus and who died? The rest of the dead are the unfaithful enemies who died by the hand of God. The faithful die by the hand of Rome. The rest die by the hand of God. Their cause was not won. Their war was lost. And John says they will not live again till this thousand years. The reign of Christ is finished. And then the writer says, this is the first resurrection. Which again, the phraseology is kind of wonky. But basically the verse just says, the rest of the dead will not have a first resurrection until the thousand years is done. And what is that? Well, I'll tell you next week. I'm out of time but that is we're going to start in verse five I didn't finish the section like I wanted to but that's okay Um, because the very next verse you'll see uh, verse six starts talking about the first resurrection and then later in the book you have the second death which is the opposite opposite of that word but we'll get all that we'll cover it next week we have four weeks left well three after this week Um, but we'll finish the book I promise this month that's all that time I have for you guys this evening we'll start revelation 20 we'll start in verse five next week thanks y'all very much